Good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, if you are new to us on Sundays, we're going through the book of Revelation in this time together, so please do open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, and if you're new to the Bible, there's uh, Bibles are under seats near you, and Revelation is at the end of the Bible. So Revelation chapter 3, we'll be reading verse 7 to 13 together, and before we do that, let's pray and ask God's help as we hear His Word. Our Father, we come to You uh, needy, and we pray that You would cause us to be open. We need Your Word, and in this time together as we hear Your Word and consider Your Word and what You wrote by Your Spirit through the Apostle John here, we know that nothing of eternal significance can happen in this time unless You work. And so we pray that you would come to bless the, the hearing of your word. We pray that you would do all the work that you need to do in our hearts this morning. We pray that those who need to be convicted or challenged would be convicted or challenged. Those who need to be encouraged would be encouraged. And we know most of us need a mix, a, a mix of all of those things. So please, Lord, by your Spirit's power, transform us and let us walk out differently in light of you speaking to us and dealing, us, dealing with us this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which none is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, in these messages that Jesus gives to churches in Revelation 2 and 3, he addresses challenges that Christians and churches face. And this morning, we see him speak to those who are tempted to think that they don't matter. They're small. You can see here, it says that they have little power or little strength or little size or influence, so they are excluded in the city as well. And so they could be prone to discouragement. And so this seems to be the primary challenge that Jesus is addressing, the challenge to be discouraged as a Christian or as a local church. So I wonder if that's how you feel. Do you feel insignificant? Do you feel like you don't matter? Do you look around and see all these people who have more money, more power, more influence, more reputation, more notoriety than you do, and you feel like you're just lost in the mix? Do you wonder if you should just keep your head down and coast through life until it's over? 
Or do you wonder if you should get out of your current life and just start fresh somewhere new? You trust in Jesus. You know he's your king. You know he's your friend. But you don't think you matter that much. You don't think you matter much to him maybe or even anyone else. And so Jesus says to his people this morning, you matter to me. Jesus is writing to a local church that needs, or he's given this message to a local church that needs encouragement. This church didn't have a reputation like the one that we considered last Sunday, if you were with us. They weren't well-known. They weren't influential. They weren't very big. People didn't talk about them and recommend them to other people. They were overlooked and even excluded in this city. And Jesus gives them a message that is intended to strengthen them and encourage them and when they feel like this and when people feel like this. So he encourages his people by giving them three images here. A key, a door, and a pillar. And so we need these images, like Jesus gives to them, in order for us to be encouraged in the midst of being tempted to discouragement. And so Jesus is appealing to our imagination here with these images. So I want to give a plug for the imagination here for maybe 15 seconds. Uh, imagination has had a bad rap among Christians. There's a lot of reasons for this historically, uh, but it shouldn't be the case. We use our imagination all the time. It's how we make sense of the world. Our imagination is what God's given us to see patterns in the world, to make sense of the world, to hold things together, to see the facts and be able to even understand the meaning and significance of things. So we use our imagination all the time. It's actually, it helps us to see truth. Our imagination isn't here for us to entertain false ideas. Imaginations don't lead us away from truth. It's actually a God-given tool to lead us into truth so that we can see what's truly true in life, so that we can see beyond just the facts and understand what everything means. So each of these images here that Jesus gives, the key, the door, the pillar, he gives them so that we would have our imaginations fired and therefore our, our perception of reality um, enhanced and clarified so that our hearts can be strengthened. And so we need these images to help us understand what's truly true. This church was looking out at the world and they were prone to have certain, uh, a certain mindset about what they saw around them and about themselves. And Jesus gives these images so that their imagination would be enacted that they, so that they would understand their situation as God sees it as it really is, so that they would be led into truth and therefore encouraged by truth. And so we need this as well. So we'll use our imagination here as Jesus wants us to, to understand reality clearly. So the first image Jesus gives is the key. So Jesus first has the master key. Verse one, you can read this with me. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one Opens. So he calls himself the Holy One. This is probably a way of referring to his divinity. In the book of Isaiah, which is echoed and quoted and alluded to numerous times in this message to Philadelphia, God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, God himself refers to himself as the Holy One of Israel repeatedly in that book. So for Jesus to refer to himself as the Holy One, is most likely a reference to the fact that he is God. He is the holy one of his people. He is the true one, the holy and true God, the only true God. He's holy in that he's set apart and set above 
everything else and everyone else. And he has the key of David here. David, the great king of Israel. This idea of the key of David was referred to in Isaiah, in Isaiah 22, 22. It referred to Eliakim as, as one who was given the key of David. And it said that he shuts and no one opens and he opens and no one shuts because he was the administrator of the kingdom. He had control of the kingdom. He opens and shuts the doors to the palace and opens the doors and shuts to the kingdom here as oversight of the kingdom. And so now Jesus says that he has this key, which means he has authority over his kingdom. He opens the door to his kingdom. No one can shut it. He shuts the door to his kingdom. No one can open it. So we know that Jesus has opened the door to his kingdom wide open to all who trust him. Entrance into his kingdom is on terms of grace only. But to those who reject him, they're not allowed in. He has authority over the salvation he gives. This is why we believe as Christians, the Bible teaches that there, is, there are not many doors into the kingdom. There are not many paths up to the top of the mountain. Jesus Christ is in control of his salvation because he is the holy and true one. And because not just of who he is, but because of what he did. He's the only one who has become a savior for his people. And so, we see this even back in chapter 1, verse 18. If you look back there with me, he says, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. So Jesus has the keys of death here, a similar image. He has authority over death. He can rescue people from eternal death, and he can send people to eternal death. And why? Because he is the one, he says, who died and who rose again. So the assumption here underneath this text is that nobody deserves to enter into his kingdom. Nobody deserves for him to open the door to his kingdom. We were all made in God's image. We were made to be noble, to live lives of virtue that reflect God's glory to the world. Every single human being was. And therefore, every single human being has value in being made in God's image. But we have all turned away from this calling. We've rejected God. We've loved his world more than we've loved him. But Jesus who did not deserve to walk through the door to death, he walked through that door. And he was locked out so that we can be let in. He was locked out on the cross as he took the eternal weight of the death and punishment we deserve so that we wouldn't have to go through that door of eternal death. Then he rose again, and now he has authority to let anyone in whom he will. And he says, anyone can come. Doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter what you are, what you've done, where you're from, you can enter in terms of grace. Repent of sin and trust in me and you're in. All by grace. So why would a church need to hear this about Jesus? Well, here's why this would encourage him. Because this church that he's speaking to is small and excluded and a persecuted church. It was persecuted in particular by the Jewish synagogue members of that time. Jesus mentions them in verse 9 here. He refers to them as those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Now, that's not anti-Semitic. We saw this a few weeks ago, if you're with us. Jesus himself was Jewish. Many of the Christians in these early churches, and this one, were, had a Jewish heritage. But the Jewish synagogue at the time was persecuting the Christians, and they were the ones claiming to be the true people of God claiming that God had shut the door to these Christians and only opened it to these Jewish 
people. And Jesus says to this little church of rejected Christians in this city, the Jewish synagogue that persecutes you, that excludes you, is actually out of the kingdom. My door's open to you. You're in the kingdom. You are mine. I give my salvation to whomever I will, and I give it to you who receive me. You're excluded by them. You're included with me. So we all feel like outsiders at some times. Um, we all want to be on the inside. Maybe you feel like being on the inside of whatever circle it is you wish to be on the inside is elusive to you. You always feel on the outside, on the outside of influence or upper management or on the outside of the best neighborhoods, on the outside of a certain socioeconomic bracket, on the outside of a certain group of people, outside of the smart people or whoever or whatever. And maybe you feel shut out. Maybe you've been shut out as people have rejected you. And so these Christians are a small and excluded group in that society. They did not have many avenues to advance their social standing in this city. And Jesus says, I have the master key. I open, and I'm open to you, and no one can shut it. You're in. So that's the first image. He wants them to use their imagination to see the truth that Jesus himself has the key to his kingdom, and and they are welcome in. Second image, the open door. Look at verse 8 with me. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So Jesus has the master key, and he's opened up a door for them. So what is this open door? Well, it could be what we've just been talking about, the open door of their own salvation. He's saying the door is open to you to have this salvation. He could be affirming to them that his kingdom's open to them. Or it could be an open door for others to enter into his kingdom. Jesus has opened his door, not just to these Christians, but to others as they would come to him by faith, as this church continues to be a faithful witness in their city and town, as these Christians continue to befriend and love and serve and speak about Jesus with those who don't know him. So this could be an opportunity that Jesus is putting before them for faithful witness, for growth of the church. I think that's probably right. That's how this image is used throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says, a wide door for effective work has opened for me. And when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. And elsewhere, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So an open door in other places in the New Testament refers to an evangelistic opportunity. It's an opportunity to speak about Christ and to see people enter the kingdom as Jesus has the door open to them. And that would be encouraging to this little persecuted church. Jesus says, I've set before you an open door. Nobody's able to shut it. Jesus is going to give them a new opportunity for faithful witness. Even though people may try to silence them, and that could be discouraging, Jesus is saying, I'm in control. Nobody can silence me. I will build my church. However we take the open door here, whether it's an encouragement that the kingdom is open to them or an encouragement that the kingdom will extend through them, the deeper point here is that Jesus honors this small church. He honors those whom the world overlooks. You may not have much influence. You may not be a very powerful person. You may not be well known. You may not have much success in the eyes of our culture. You may not have a lot of connections. You may not have a lot of money. But Jesus sees 
every one of your efforts to be faithful to him. And he honors you. Most churches are like this church in Philadelphia. Most churches are small churches. Most churches in America have under 100 members. Most churches then may be tempted to feel like they're in the shadow of larger churches. They're not as well known. They're not noticed. They don't have much influence or power. And very often smaller churches see larger churches growing even more. And the one church that has a great reputation in the previous message here, um, the church in Sardis, is actually the one that's rebuked. So when we see that when Jesus speaks to these churches, we see that size is not his, the determining factor for Jesus' approval. That church was rebuked for not having a reality that matched their reputation. And this church here, this little church in Philadelphia, was one of only two of the seven churches that Jesus spoke to that gives sheer commendation, no correction, nothing critical, nothing negative to say at all, just commendation. So here's what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that small churches are better than larger churches. The first church in the New Testament, do you know how big it was? Right? Overnight, over 3,000 people in Jerusalem in Acts 2. And then it grew bigger. So the first church in the New Testament was a megachurch of thousands. So we should never feel like church size is somehow better or more pleasing to God, whether it's smaller or bigger. So when God gives growth to a faithful church, whether small or big, we, we as Christians, whether it's our church or another church, should celebrate that and praise God for that and thank God for that because Jesus has opened his door and he's letting people and Jesus is doing that and we praise him for it. This also doesn't mean that we shouldn't want to see growth in depth and breadth. Jesus calls us to faithfulness and fruitfulness. We should want to see growth like a fruitful vine. But here's what this does mean. It means that Jesus does not judge churches by their size, but by their faithfulness. He doesn't judge churches by their reputation or by their influence, but by their faithfulness. Some of the most heroic people who have ever lived have been unknown to most other people. There's a book that's had a lasting impact on me called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. Don Carson wrote it about his dad, Tom Carson who was a faithful pastor in French-speaking Canada. He served a small church. He was not well-known. His work didn't seem exciting to the world, but he was a faithful plotter. He kept serving. He kept praying. He kept loving. He kept preaching and teaching. But as faithful as he was, he was prone to discouragement because in a world that values success, with hearts that value success, all of us, when we don't see the markers of success in our own lives, or ministry in his case, we can wonder, is it, is it because of my situation and circumstances or is it because of me? You ever feel that way? Sometimes it's hard to tell. Is it a mix? Is something wrong with me? Why am I not having the influence that person's having? Why, why do I not see the fruit in my life that that person has? Why do these people seem to have a lot of friends and I am having a hard time making friends? So proneness to discouragement can be common to all of us. We wonder if our little sphere of influence, is it because of factors that are out of my control or am I really the problem? Our world, even our Christian subcultures in America, value the big, value the known, value the special. 
value the exciting. And Jesus' message should help small churches to not feel inferior because of their size. And it should also help large churches not feel superior because of their size. What matters to Jesus is that we know him and that step after step we take it in faithfulness to him. So some of you may move at some point and you'll look for another church where you live and you may tend to overlook the small and the modest for the big and the influential and the one that seems well-known in the area and intriguing. Or if you settle somewhere that's in a smaller or more modest or unknown church, there may be times where you kind of give a glance, a wistful glance at what seems to be really a lot going on with maybe a larger uh, church and you wonder what it's like to be there. You wonder, should I leave to be part of that that has maybe better preaching and better programs and better services? Maybe some of you will become pastors and church leaders and we'll send you out from our church to go somewhere. And where you, when you go look to where you may serve the Lord, you may be prone to want to overlook areas that don't seem to have many people. You might want to go to the exciting places. Maybe, maybe not even want to consider something that's not around a college or in a densely populated urban area. Or if you do settle somewhere that's more unknown, you may struggle you feel overlooked, you feel not influential. People aren't moving to the town, it's pretty stable, and so the church doesn't seem to be growing in numbers, but there's another one across town that does seem to be growing, and we can start to feel inferior and insecure. And so we need to remember here that Jesus' eye is on the unknown. He, he's on the, the small, the plodding, he looks at them, he, they have his heart. And they, they need faithful leaders and members as well. That's what counts with him. And notice the language Jesus is using here to commend them in verse 8. He says, I know you have but little power, but you have kept my word and not denied my name. So how are you doing at keeping Jesus' word? This is what matters. Right? Again, it's not size, small or large, that matters. So we can't be content in thinking one direction or the other of size or influence or power. Jesus is saying, have you kept my word? So how are you doing at studying God's word to knowing what it even means to keep it? How are you prioritizing reading and meditating on the word of Christ? Are you prioritizing being here on Sundays so that you might learn God's word together and hold fast to it together? Do you lean in with, a, with open Bibles and open hearts and engaged minds during this time right here and through the whole service as we engage with God and his word? Fathers, are you intentionally discipling your families to know the word of Christ and hold fast to the word of Christ? Parents, are you speaking with your children if they're still at home with you throughout the day about God and the world he's made and what it looks like to hold fast to him and live faithfully with him? Friends, do you talk with one another about the word of Christ? Do you press underneath the superficialities of conversation to ask how the climate of your friend's soul is? Are you encouraged about what the Lord's doing these days? Or how are you growing? Or how are you discouraged that you're not growing? How are your affections for Jesus? How are you thankful? Asking these kinds of questions. Do you pray for others in our church or in your small group or other friends that you have? So now Jesus encourages them with a promise. Look at verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, 
I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So the Jews in the synagogue have rejected the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. They've rejected the Christians in Philadelphia. Again, I think this goes without saying, we're not talking about Philadelphia in America, right? This older Philadelphia here, for some reason, that comes to mind. Um, Because that's the only thing I think of when I think of Philadelphia. So came to mind even there. It's not. Okay, so Middle East, Jews persecuting these Christians, small little cluster of believers being isolated or excluded or mocked by these Jewish believers in Philadelphia. And then Jesus says a reversal is coming. One day these Jewish persecutors will bow down at the feet of these Christians. Isn't that surprising? They'll acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus, the Holy One of God's people, the Holy One of Israel, loves these Christians. They're His loved people. And this is a surprising promise because it's a reversal of what those in this Jewish synagogue would have been expecting and would have thought. The picture of bowing down at the feet of God's people is from Isaiah. And it's a a picture of the nations coming to bow down before Israel, God's people, in the end. The Jewish people of the first century were thinking that they were God's people because of their genealogy, because of their heritage, because they were ethnically Jewish. But the fundamental problem was that they had rejected their own Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And so Jesus encouraged this church by saying, those promises in Isaiah that talk about the nations bowing down to Israel, you are Israel because you're united to me, the Jewish Messiah. Jew and Gentile alike are the true Israel of God. You are the true people of God. And so Isaiah says that the nations will come and bow down. Well, the nations are all those who don't know me and reject me, which includes those who are part of that synagogue. So those who are persecuting you saying you're not my people, that they're the true Israel, they're wrong. You're my people. And they will acknowledge that one day. Isn't that a surprising reversal of their expectations? Jesus wants us to see that his people may be rejected today, but a day is coming when it will be reversed. They'll be shown to be God's true people. And there, there may be a deeper encouragement from this as well, because Jesus may not just be giving them this hope of vindication, this hope of, of being honored and for others to see what's true, but this also may be giving them missional optimism. He may be giving them hope that some of these Jewish persecutors may not just see that they're Christians, but may actually become Christians themselves. There's a couple reasons why this may be the case. First, remember Jesus said that he's giving them an open door, and that may refer to an open door of witness. His kingdom open, a door of mission. So perhaps some of these enemies will come to faith. Second, verse 9 This picture of the people who come to bow down before God's people, I mentioned that's an allusion to Isaiah. It's an allusion to several texts in the book of Isaiah. And when we read those texts in Isaiah, we get the sense that the honoring that's going to be done to God's people is not merely forced honoring against their will, but it's an acknowledgement of that God is the one true God and that these are his people and there's a desire to join themselves with God's people. In other words, those who are bowing down are those who have come to the realization that God is God, these are his people, and I want a part of it. And so in Isaiah, the pathway into becoming God's people is not just honoring the one true God, but honoring those who who belong to that one true God that you might enter in and join them. 
So this may be hopeful for them to say, even those who are persecuting you, they may come to faith in me. So there's two encouragements for us today then. First, there's a lot of concern with being on the right side of history today, right? Nobody wants to be left behind the historical trajectories. In Philadelphia, it looked like the church was on the wrong side of history. They were excluded, little persecuted. They were minority. And Jesus says to them, I'm the one who controls history. I'm the one who charts the path of history. I'm the one who sets the historical trajectories of the universe. And here's where history is headed. History is headed toward a day when you will be recognized as being loved by me. You will be recognized as being my faithful and my true people. You will be honored. Others will recognize that. A day is coming where all of history will be shown uh, to be moving toward a day when you are the ones that are on the right side of history. It may not look like it today. Most people may not agree that to, with that today, but that's where history is heading. And so he wants these Christians to have their imaginations ignited to see that they know the one true God and they know where history is heading. And so this is supposed to be deeply encouraging to hold fast to Christ even when it's not popular in our culture. And second, an encouragement would be to never give up on people. Some who despise Christians may become Christians later. Maybe that's your story. Maybe some of you are here and you used to not like Christians. Uh, And maybe you had some good reasons to in light of your experience. But over time, you came to know Jesus. And you came to learn that Jesus loves his people. And you became a part of his people. Some of you may have heard of Rosaria Butterfield. She tells her story in a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She was an English professor at Syracuse University. She was especially engaged in feminist studies and critiquing Christianity. And then she was befriended by Christians. And she ended up becoming one. It's a wonderful story. I encourage you to read it. Jesus has the key and he opened the door. And one of the reasons why she became a Christian is because of how one Christian man didn't write her off, but was continually kind to her and engaged with her. She had published an article criticizing uh, Promise Keepers, uh, Christian movement, a couple decades ago, and he wrote her a letter. And she said she had two files on her desk. One file was fan mail, and one file was for hate mail. And she didn't know where to file this one. Because this man... uh, didn't agree with her, but she said it was the kindest letter of opposition I've ever received. And so it sat right in the middle of her desk for a week. And the letter ended with an offer to talk on the phone, to get to know one another and to talk more. And so she took this man up on that offer and got to know him and had dinner with he and his wife. And that led to many meals and two years of conversations and friendship and, and studying the Bible on her own and asking questions. And then she ended up becoming a Christian. So never write anybody off. There's always hope. Last image. An immovable pillar. Read verse 12 with me. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And I will write my own new name. So Jesus is going to make you a pillar. Is that encouraging? What does that mean? 
I don't think we can be encouraged by it unless we use our imaginations here for a moment. So why would that be encouraging? Well, Jesus refers to the temple of my God. That doesn't just refer to uh, any temple. He's being very specific. The temple of God in Revelation is in heaven, and one day it will come down out of heaven. And as we fast forward through history and see where Revelation's heading, Revelation is heading toward a day when all of creation will be renewed and, and all of God's people will be raised from the dead to live with Him on a new earth, in a new creation forever. And Revelation says that there will be no temple because God and the Lamb will be there and they are the temple. And the whole new creation is actually symbolically represented as a temple, as the place of God's presence. That's the point of the temples. God is there with His people. And so for Jesus to say, you will be a pillar in the temple, He's saying you will be an immovable piece of that temple. In other words, you're, you're not going to be turned to stone and set up as a pillar. What he's saying is, you will be with me forever. You will be in my presence forever in this new creation to come, and you will never be able to be removed from there. You have eternal security forever. That's why he says right after you'll be a temple, temple or a pillar, he says, never shall he go out of it. In other words, you will never be taken out of my presence. You will be immovable with me. So Jesus says that his people will have a stable and steady presence with him. They'll be an immovable fixture in God's dwelling place. So to underline the point of belonging, he says that there'll be a pillar with names etched on them. We'll have the name of God and the name of the city of God and the name of Jesus written on us. In other words, the point here of this image is for us to see that we belong. In this world, we may not feel like we belong. You may not feel like you belong anywhere. Jesus is saying that with him you belong. And you're headed to, after this vapor of a life is over, you'll be headed to an eternal existence of belonging with him in his city, in his temple forever. So maybe you feel like your family hasn't treated you the same since you become a Christian, where friendships have been sadly strained. Maybe you feel like you have a hard time even fitting in with Christians. You belong, you're part of this church family, and yet you feel like you don't belong. So in, in this world, in this life, all of our sense of belonging will be unstable because God himself is our home, and he's the only place where we can feel stable. But in the future to come, we will be like a pillar in God's temple. We will belong and we'll belong with one another and we'll know it and we'll feel it to the core of who we are and we'll know that it will never be removed, will never be cast out. So that's the deep encouragement of this promise. And so he's calling us to use our imaginations then, to see reality more clearly than we can with our physical eyes alone. So I want to end by drawing attention to four words in the middle of this passage. It's at the end of verse nine. Look with me. They will learn, those that oppose you, Jesus says that I have loved you. So you may feel unloved. You may feel overlooked. You may feel unimportant. You may feel like your life doesn't matter. And Jesus says you do matter. Your life matters. Every moment of your life matters. I love you. You're precious in my eyes. 
If you are Jesus's through faith, you can be certain of this, that he loves you and he loves you with all his heart. And if you don't have that certainty that you have the heart of God this morning, if you've not trusted in Christ and his work on the cross for you in dying for you and rising again, you can have that this morning. You give him your heart and you'll find that you have his. So now we have this welcome for Jesus. What do we do with it? Well, one thing we do is we extend it to one another. We help others feel like they belong because we do belong to one another. If we belong to God, we belong to one another and we want to help the culture of our friendships and community feel like it. So let's pray for that to happen. Father, we thank you that you have a heart as you do. We thank you that your heart overflowed to create this world and make us in your image. And we thank you that when we have uh, not reflected your glory as we should and we still fail to do throughout every day, we thank you that your heart still comes toward us and overflowed to send Jesus to die and rise for us and to welcome us as friends. And we thank you that we have this promise of your heart forever immovable in your presence. We thank you that this is how you want it, not just how you planned for it to be, but you want it this way. You want us with you. And so we pray that even right now, your spirit would work in our hearts to help us feel deeply loved by you and by your son and spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand to receive a benediction. May the Holy One and True One convince our hearts moment by moment that we belong, that we might live with great freedom and joy and extend belonging to others. Go in peace.